Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 119 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Joining me today is Rosemary Sheldon. This is her second time on the podcast, as she was my guest for episode 81 as well. Rosemary taught history as a professor at Virginia Military Institute for more than 25 years and is a world-renowned expert on intelligence activities in the ancient world. She earned her PhD from the University of Michigan in 1987 and has published several books and many articles over the years, as well as serving as an editor for the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence and Small Wars and Insurgencies and the Journal of Military History. I invited Rosemary onto the podcast again after reading her book, Kill Caesar. It's about the lives and deaths of the first five Roman emperors and the internal security measures they put in place to protect themselves with varying degrees of success. I know that ancient Rome has been on everyone's minds lately, so I thought it would be a great time to revisit this amazing era of history. But before we dive into this story, I want to ask you something. Are you an amateur military historian like me? Has this podcast rekindled your interest in Eastern Europe and the Cold War? Maybe you're finally getting into reenacting and living history, just like you've always said you would. If so, you should check out the incredible collection of surplus military goods at krishiki.com. Press himself scours the continent for the best uniforms and field equipment available and delivers them right to your door. He's got almost anything you can imagine and many things you haven't. Uniforms from East Germany, the Soviet Union, and modern-day Bulgaria, Poland, and Russia are all available. Rucksacks, mess kits, and load-bearing gear are also up on the site right now. The inventory is constantly changing, so you never know what kind of gems you might stumble on, all at very affordable prices. Find it all at krushiki.com. That's K-R-U-S-C-H-I-K-I.com. And use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 for 10% off your order. Rosemary, thank you for joining me again today. Thank you for having me back, Justin. Of course, of course. I know we just kind of barely scratched the surface of so many centuries of history the last time around. So I'm honestly very excited to revisit this topic from a new angle again this time around. Yes, I did not touch on internal security in my first book that we discussed last time. And so this is a, a whole new way of looking at intelligence. Okay, okay, great. Well, I'm sure everyone's looking forward to hearing it as well. So you mentioned in the in the book, of course, the Julio-Claudian dynasty. So can you tell us what that is exactly? Sure. The Julio-Claudian dynasty is simply a fancy name for the first five emperors of Rome, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. They come from two major houses of uh, nobles, the Julians and the Claudian, and they intermarried. And so they're referred to as the Julio-Claudian dynasty because they start with Augustus, and when Nero is killed, the dynasty ends. Okay, so you mentioned Nero being killed, obviously, and that was a, a pretty common ending for a lot of these Roman emperors, not just the ones that we're talking about today, but on as well. So why is that? Is there any particular reason that so many of them met violent deaths? Yes, what 
what interested me is that I went back and read my first book. I was looking at a footnote and I had a statistic in there that I guess I hadn't thought through. It said that 75% of Roman emperors died by assassination. And I thought, hmm, that's a very high number. Let me go look that up. Where did that number come from? Not only has it been studied by other Roman historians, but you can look up Wikipedia, Roman emperors, how did they die? And there it is, 75% of them. So I counted each one, did the math, as simple as it is, 75%, which is the highest percentage, the highest rate of assassination of any monarchy at any time, anywhere. Yeah, that, that was stunning for me to read as well. And I, I just had no idea that it was like that. Of course, I knew that that period of history and many others were very violent, but that is shocking. Like, I wonder if they were looking around at the time and felt like that was business as usual. I guess it was for them, but it certainly doesn't seem that way to us. No. When you look at America, for example, 10% of our presidents have either been assassinated or had attempts on their lives. And that, you know, that's that's rather low. We didn't even have a Secret Service until, you know, the Woodrow Wilson administration. So you look back on the Romans and you'd think, well, they had a Praetorian Guard. That's 9,000 soldiers dedicated to keeping the emperor alive. And yet 75% of Roman emperors die of assassination. Something's wrong with this picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So was this a series? I know we'll get into it in detail, but was this generally speaking like the lone gunman, so to speak, or was it conspiracies abounding everywhere or a combination of both? That's the difference between the American story and the Roman story. In America, it's always the lone gunman, some person with an axe to grind, some crazy who takes a pot shot at the president. In Rome, it's something completely different. All of the attacks, all of the conspiracies, uh, people who got together to plan these things were all senators or upper class people and high ranking military men. Uh, there are occasional people who will break into a palace and try to kill the emperor. Uh, there was one, for example, in 18 BC, somebody broke into Augustus's uh, palace with a, it was a camp orderly with a knife. And you know, of course he was dispatched, but, but that's, it's meaningless. Nobody, none of those lone wolves at the time, and we don't know what, what their reason was, succeeded. Okay. And so it's, it's because in order to kill an emperor, the main thing is access. And and Joe Average does not walk in off the street into a palace surrounded by the Praetorian Guard and get access to the emperor. Right, right, right. That that part makes sense, at least. So since we're talking about the emperor, I do know that before Augustus became the emperor, Rome was a republic. So how exactly did it transition from republic to empire? An assassination, of course. <laughs> the, Re the Republic was, was, you know, on its last legs, and one can argue forever about, you know, the, the structural problems with it. And, and if Julius, Julius Caesar had lived, you know, perhaps he would have become the first emperor, but he was killed because he tried. If there's one thing the Romans did not want, it was a king. They had gotten rid of theirs in 509. They had a republic. They were very proud of it. They did not even use the word Rex. There was no crown. And the hardest thing for me to do when writing this book was remembering not to use the word throne. Because <laughs> we always talk about, oh, they made, a, they made a, an attempt on the throne. There was no throne. 
I'm sure the emperor had a very nice chair somewhere where he held business, but, but throne and king uh, go together. Monarchy goes with kings, but no, the empire was an autocracy. It was ruled by one person, but technically he was not a king. And that's why the succession problem came along because there was no legal way to pass your authority on to somebody else. Hmm. Okay. If the, if the Senate wants to elect somebody new after you die, they could do it. But of course there were people moving behind the scenes to make sure that somebody else was chosen long before the Senate got to vote on it. Augustus tried to make it hereditary and other emperors worked on that principle. But the fact of the matter is anybody could be Roman emperor if he could make it to the top. And since anybody could be, anybody would try. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. I hadn't realized that until I read your book anyway. So you mentioned Augustus was the first emperor. And can you talk about the like the internal security measures that he put in place? I mean, if he's following an assassination, then he's going to be very cognizant of the threats to his rule, obviously. Yes. Since he's the first person to, to be the autocrat, he knows what happened to Caesar. So he knows not to try to do the same thing. He's not going to call himself king or in any way announce that he is sole ruler. He's going to pretend that the Republic is still there. They will still elect consuls, the Senate will still meet, but there are certain things he will have to put in place for a security service. And here's where it gets complicated. Because in modern times, we have organizations that do that sort of thing. The FBI internally, the CIA externally, MI5, MI6. We have bureaucracies and we have hierarchies. The Romans didn't have that. So there are a series of security uh, organizations that are put in place to do various tasks. We just don't know how they were coordinated. So for example, 16 cohorts of Praetorian Guard, three cohorts, the urban cohorts who basically were the, the guardians of, of the city of Rome outside of the palace, the Wigiles that were put in charge of fire brigades, but they could also be used in a, a police capacity if that's what the emperor needed them for. We have the delatores who are informers, but again, they're not an organized group of people. They're just snitches. We have laws like the laws of the Julian laws of Maestas, which was laws of treason, you know, things you could not do, like make an attempt on the emperor's life. <laughs> and you had an imperial cult which worshiped the genus of the emperor, not the emperor himself, but, you know, his health and his well-being. And all of these things were put together to keep the empire in place and to keep the emperor safe. Hmm. And yet still 75% of Roman emperors wind up dead. Right, right, right. That's what I was thinking. So I, I know we'll get into it in detail, but were these vastly dysfunctional organizations or were they, you know, infiltrated by subversives or, or was it just a, like a whole host of problems? Well, that's the, that's one of the problems with the sources is that we we don't know how they coordinated with each other. We know from the sources that are always speculative and broken. We get fragments of stories. We get contradictory stories. If the emperor calls in the guard to do something, then we hear about that. 
but we don't have a source that, for example, tells us the internal structure of the Praetorian Guard. We have had Roman historians try to put together every little scrap of information, and I you know, could give you 10 or 20 books for each of these organizations where Roman historians have tried to describe them and put together what we know about them and who was in them and how they were promoted. But that doesn't tell us how they protected the emperor. Mm, I see. And so it's hard to tell. I forgot to mention the German bodyguards. Augustus had a, a bodyguard of German soldiers, the Batavians. He, he seemed to like them. It was just an add-on thing. Some emperors had them. Some emperors didn't. But again, it's, it's a few more cohorts of, of people who follow you around and to make sure you're not attacked, not only in the palace, but on the road, because the emperor could travel, he could go on vacation in Italy, he could go on campaign in Germany, wherever he went, these guards went with him. Hmm. So it sounds like he had plenty of people to guard against like specific physical attacks. But since we mentioned conspiracies and that kind of thing, do we know anything about how that sort of thing was rooted out or investigated at all? I know you mentioned, I think, the Delatoris, right, where the, the snitches? Right. The, the problem with these guards is, you know, today when you think of the, the quintessential Hollywood or maybe just the Daily News guards, the Secret Service that follow people, it's always the guy in the black suit, black tie, white shirt, earplug, talking into his wristwatch or his lapel, always standing right there with the president. Again, it's about access. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to have the guard close to you. If you have thousands of people, you know, guarding the palace from the outside, but the guy with the knife is on the inside, there's the problem. The attack is always going to come, is going to be planned by the upper classes. Why? Because there are a lot of nobles around who have better pedigrees than Augustus or any of his family members. People thinking, well, if he can be emperor, I can be emperor. Why not? There's no guardian god like in China. You have the mandate of heaven. It's all terribly secular in the Roman. Roman emperors didn't have a lot of children. Sometimes they had none whatsoever, whereas Chinese emperors had multiple wives, concubines, hundreds of children you know, to choose from. Rome, you, know, you might have one son, and they could kill you and him too, mm -hmm. and that's all you had to do. So... I would say you have to look at three layers. Number one, who plans the conspiracy? And that's always going to be not only upper class men, but one of them is going to be the replacement. That's why you kill a Roman emperor for his job. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't kill him because you don't like him or he's crazy. Those kinds of histories got written much later about you, well, we had to kill Nero, he was crazy. We had to kill Caligula, he was a pervert. No, they kill these emperors because they want their job. And then you write the history afterwards and you can say whatever <laughs> things were said at the time. Well, you know, they said about, you know, his sex life. This is nonsense. You kill him because you want the job. Mm -hmm. Now, the person who's going to take over the job is not going to wield the knife. There, the second layer is going to be who, whoever is going to actually do it. I, I would call him, the, you know, the knife man. And it always reminds me of a famous quote by Eric Ambler in his novel, Coffin for Demetrius, where he says, it's not 
who pulls the trigger that matters. It's who pays for the bullet. Hmm. Interesting. Now, yeah. right, that that's an anachronism because they didn't have bullets. But you had to have somebody with, with a grudge, for example, would be a good person to recruit that would be willing to stick a knife in the emperor. And then there's going to be a, a group of people that are around the emperor that have to be subverted because you need access and you need to have people that are going to go along with it. Mm-hmm. And that's when, as you said, the Praetorian Guard comes in. You're going to have guards all over the palace. There are thousands of people in the palace. But you need to get the emperor alone. You need the dagger man. And as soon as he's dead, you need the replacement to declare, you know, the king is dead. Long live the king. And there's your transition. Mm-hmm. If you can subvert, if you can get together the emperor's wife, the grand chamberlain, and the praetorian prefect say goodbye. Oh, wow. Because that gives you access. Both the wife and the chamberlain have the keys to the bedroom. And the praetorian prefect tells the praetorian guard where to go or what to do. He can always divert them. If he goes along with it, you're dead. Yes. And speaking of that, I I mean, sometimes the threat did emanate from within the praetorian guard, did it not? No, I don't think it originated in the Praetorian Guard. I, I believe it, it always originates with, with the senators. Mm-hmm. But the Praetorian prefect was, was a very important person. Obviously, he's very close to the emperor. Sometimes you can trust him, sometimes you can't. You could have, for example, Caligula, for example, when he uh, first came to the throne, he had his father-in-law, he had the head of the Praetorian Guard. Everything was fine. Then he got ill, and they thought he was going to die. So I think his father-in-law and the, and the head of the guard got together and started planning about, mm, we need plan B. We need a transition team because he may die. I, I'm not sure they meant it as a conspiracy, but Caligula recovered. He found out about plan B and he had those people murdered. Oh, wow. Wow. So what you're actually doing and what you're perceived as doing can be two different things. Sure, sure. Understandable. So is that what typically happened if any conspiracies were found where they just like everyone involved was rounded up and killed immediately? Yes. You don't give anybody a second chance to come back a second time and kill you. If you're going to try to kill the emperor, you have to succeed on the first try mm. because you're going to wind up dead. That's that's the way it ends. The statistic is under Claudius, for example, and he's not considered one of the bad ones. He's not Caligula or Nero. Claudius put to death, if Suetonius is correct, 35 senators, 300 knights executed for presumably being part of treasonous plots. Wow. Now here's, here's the problem. When you're emperor, are you paranoid or are they out to get you? <laughs> if, if, you're, if you know that people are, are going to try to take your place, and you have all these guards around you, then do you start looking under the cushions? Do, you know, ha- how happy a life do you have? It's, it's, it was said of Augustus even that, you know, he's a perfect example of a man that could never really relax because when you're emperor, it's like sitting under the sword of Damocles, mm-hmm. you know, it's hanging mm-hmm. over your head. It may drop at any moment. Sure. So if you, you could call an emperor paranoid or you could just say, well, you know, he, he, he just knew. Mm-hmm. 
Domitian, who's not in this particular set of emperors, though, but he came up with the best quote. He said, nobody will believe there's a conspiracy against the emperor until it succeeds. <laughs> and then they'll believe you after you're dead. But it's too late. It's too yeah, late. Yeah, there are no I told you so's at that point. That's right. My goodness. So you mentioned earlier that the Delatoris, the snitch network, was this like a very effective kind of organization or just like a bunch of people who are willing to sell someone out to their own advantage or something in between? Well, the thing about in intelligence, since Rome doesn't really have an intelligence service, because that makes it sound like it's one organization, they, they have all these people out there, you know, looking around. But intelligence can be collected by anybody. And in an age where you don't have listening devices, you don't have guns, you don't have long distance shots at people, it has to be up close and personal, including finding information. You have to be behind a curtain or, you know, listening in on something or just happen by. It could be a slave. It could be a, another senator. It could be somebody making a drunken remark at a dinner party. You don't know where information comes. But if anyone hears that there is a plot against the emperor and doesn't tell the emperor and he finds out, he'll kill you. Mm. So it's in your best interest to let the emperor know what he means, because he'll, if it's true and he heads off the conspiracy and lives, he'll reward you. So delatoris were simply senators, you know, high-ranking people who would turn in a colleague because, you know, for, be, for being treasonous. Now, there's another problem with, and why they get such a bad reputation. The emperor offers them money for doing this. He said that if you turn somebody in and they are convicted of treason and then executed, you get half of their estate. Do you realize how much money that is if you're turning in another senator? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, and, and what would your motivation be? Wouldn't it be worth a try even if he's not convicted? Because nothing happens to you if, if he's like, oops, well, you know, I'm sorry, but that's what I heard. And so they get the reputation of, of you know, turning people in for money. If you're looking for another discreet way to carry survival or emergency gear, look no further than the new covert Mark I briefs from Sotira Systems. The Mark I's feature thigh pockets on either side, large enough for a phone, radio, passport, or other documents. The waistband contains nine slots for small items such as handcuff keys, SD and SIM cards, padlock shims, and the like. The elastic band keeps them snug but accessible. The Covert Mark 1s are designed with comfort and utility at their core and are manufactured from high-grade wicking and fast-drying sports fabric. They can easily replace a traveler's belt pack, which is far more likely to be stolen from you during a robbery than the briefs you're wearing. Covert Mark 1 briefs are configurable and suitable for anyone in law enforcement, military service, or even the security-conscious global traveler. Find them at sotirasystems.co.uk. That's S-O-T-E-I-R-A systems.co.uk. Or at the link in the show notes of this episode. And use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order. I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but Rome is a state with no public prosecutors and no police force. So senators bringing 
things to the attention of the emperor is considered a good thing. Mm -hmm. And now at the beginning of an emperor's reign, for example, Caligula, he would say, well, I'll banish all delatories, you know, throw them out of town and I'll burn all the records for the convictions of people in the past. I'm sure he kept copies, but <laughs> you know, I would say that to make it sound like it was good. And I will suspend the law of Maestas. You can't suspend the law of treason. Hmm. If somebody tries to kill you, you're going to, you're going to hang them or stab them or cut their head off or have them stoned or any of the number, any number of charming reasons the, that you could give for, you know, killing people in, in, in wonderful ways, <laughs> you know, having drawn and quartered, being stoned to death on the Gemonian stairs, being thrown into the Tiber. The Romans were very creative when it came to punishing people. <laughs> So, and especially if it's an upper class person and they want to not just embarrass them, but, but humiliate them publicly, mm -hmm. that normally capital punishment wouldn't apply to a senator. But for treason, oh yes. They, they could also send you to an island with no food and water. Oh, wow. And they're, then they're, these islands are still there. In fact, uh, Mussolini used one of them. Uh, Pendateria is um, still a prison island. Hmm. It's about 1.7 kilometers square. And... It's a rock. It's a rock in the Mediterranean. And um, this is where Augustus sent his uh, daughter when he found out that she was plotting against him. And uh, eventually she was allowed out to uh, Reggio Calabria. But then Tiberius came to power. This was his ex-wife. So he just denied her any uh, monetary payments, no food, no water. She starved. Oh, my death. gosh. Brutal. Oh, they were sweet. They were sweet, these people. Mm. <laughs> so, Rosemary, I mean, it sounds like there is every incentive to report these conspiracies because you have so much to gain by doing so and so much to lose by not doing so. And yet, clearly, these conspiracies abounded, successful ones at that. So why is it that the delators, you know, appeared to kind of fail to detect or, det or fail to report anyway these conspiracies against the various emperors? Well, if you're going to have a conspiracy... You need certain things. Number one is small number of people who know about it. The more people who know, the more chances are that somebody's going to hear about it and one of them is going to be a, a, a snitch. So you want to uh, keep it quiet. You have to have the important people in it. As I said, the replacement emperor, maybe one or two senators, you know, somebody who can bring the rest of the Senate over to your side after it's done somebody from the Praetorian Guard to make sure that he'll bring the army in, and, and then you, the dagger man who actually does the deed. Many conspiracies were found out. There was an attempt on Augustus's life. In fact, there's one, two, three, four, five, uh, six of them, even before he actually becomes emperor. So when he's on his way you know, back to Rome and still fighting in the civil wars, constant attempts on his life. My gosh. In 9 BC, there, there were a bunch of unnamed conspirators that we hear about from Diocassius, then his daughter, then his granddaughter, finally at the end, and he dies of, at the age of 76 of natural causes. He's the grand old man of the empire. Everybody wants to die in bed like Augustus. There were even stories, conspiracy theories, that his wife poisoned him with figs, that she went out to the tree in the back and poisoned certain figs, and she picked one and ate one herself, the good one. And then she picks the poison fig and hands it to Augustus, and he eats it and dies. Oh, wow. So we have two levels of evidence we have to look at. They're not only conspiracies. They're conspiracy theories. 
that turn out that they're not really true, but you know, people love a good rousing story. And when an emperor dies, who's there? Not the general public. Most of the people in the army, nobody else in the in the empire is seeing this. So however the historian writes it up, if he just wants to have a rousing good story and say, well, you know, at the time, they just put a pillow on his face and that's how, you know, the emperor died. And we have no way of knowing. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's so unfortunate with with so many of these stories that it's and like the others I cover here as well, that there's just always so many questions left unanswered. Right. Now, to give you another example, there are some stories that are so dramatic. You think, well, they've got to be true. This is too good. Where Claudius's wife has a son by previous marriage and he's reached the age of majority, 18. And she gets her husband, Claudius, to give him the ring, appointing him successor. That wasn't too bright, because now that he has the ring, what do we need old Claudius for? Mm. And so she gives him his favorite dish of of mushrooms, and they're poisoned, and he dies. And her son, Nero, comes to the throne. My gosh. Poisoning was quite common in, in the ancient world. Again, when you don't have guns, you know, it has to be a knife, a sword. I suppose you could bop him in the head with a rock, but, you know, just to make sure. But poisoning was quite, quite common. Yeah, certainly. Seems that way. So I I think you mentioned after Augustus was the first emperor to pass, and it was Tiberius was his successor. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Right. So how did things change under Tiberius? Well, he comes to rule in 14 AD. Immediately, there is a legionary revolt of three legions, in Pannonia, four legions under Caecinus Severus on the Rhine, and they all declare for Germanicus instead of him. So he's got to put that down. Fortunately, he was a good soldier. He could do that. Later on, one of the um, slaves would try to bring back a relative of Augustus, a group of posthumous. He had to put that down in in 16. That's two years later. Same year. It's a conspiracy by Marcus Rubonius Libo Drusus. Boom, he's executed. 21, Gaius Silius and Titius Sabinus. 31, the plot of Sejanus, the really big one, his own Praetorian prefect. And then 37, he dies. So I'm, I'm looking, where, when was he on vacation? You know, when, when was he ever just, you know, just chilling out, you know, on Capri, ha- having an ice drink or something? You're constantly looking, even when he lived in Capri, not in Rome. There was a conspiracy going on in Rome against him by Sejanus. And he had, there were dozens of people who died after that. Every every blood relative of Sejanus, every person descended from him. And then a lot of senators who were, had been close to him, maybe part of the conspiracy, maybe not, but they were gone. Hmm. So was Sejanus himself, was he a a senator with ambitions for the no, he, he was an equestrian. And, and the big question is what made him think he was going to be able to be, you know, in, in that upper echelon. He tried to marry into the royal family and Tiberius said, oh, no, this isn't happening because, you know, he kind of knew he didn't even trust the Praetorian Guard. He had him arrested by the, the Wigiles. And then, you know, once he's arrested and killed, Nobody's going to be stupid enough to say, oh, no, I was on Zedrinus' side. <laughs> of course not. And even in 37, when Tiberius dies, we have three different accounts 
with three different ways that he died. One says he died of natural causes. He caught a fever. He had a pain in his side. He's gone. Second one says he was poisoned by Caligula. And the third one says that the Praetorian prefect just put a pillow over his face and said, oh, be done with it. You know, die. Come mm. on. We're, we're tired of waiting. He kept making, he kept reviving. And they got a little short-tempered. So, oh, they, wow. but, but again, you can say, okay, he died of natural causes. Give him the benefit of the doubt. So that means out of the five Julio-Claudians, three of them were, were actually assassinated. And the other two may have died natural causes, but there were a whole lot of conspiracy theories saying that they weren't. Incredible. You know, actually, the most amazing thing to me is after the second or third or fourth, there's still people with ambitions to become the emperor, even knowing the track record of the emperors themselves. Yes. And in 69, you have the year of the four emperors, where four people try for it. They all wind up dead. They, nobody reigned for more than three months. And then Vespasian comes and, and gets the job and founds a new dynasty. But you've got to ask yourself, you know, who do you trust? Yeah, not many people yeah, are yeah. trustworthy, apparently. No, no. You know, when it comes to ambition, is there anything new? People stabbing each other in the back to get to the top. This is not a Roman concept. Right, okay? right, it's, right. It's always around. So. so Tiberius passed away, maybe natural causes, maybe not. And then Caligula came to power. So what was Caligula doing before he came to power? What was his role in the empire? It's interesting that Caligula's early life if you were to say, you know, is, is whether an emperor is, hang on one second, here we go, Caligula. Is he paranoid or was he born that way? Was he crazy? The atmosphere in which he was raised was enough to make anybody paranoid. He was the son of Germanicus, a man who was supposedly we thought was murdered by Tiberius. His mother, Agrippina, and all his brothers were done away with because of Sejanus. Now, this young boy is then sent to live on Capri with Tiberius himself in his old age. And if you've ever, ever seen the movie Caligula, you know, maybe that's a suggestion of the kinds of things that went on there. Tiberius still could have been killing his relatives, you know, remotely. He had to learn how to protect his position constant threats to his life. He's only 18 when he comes to the throne. Wouldn't you be just a wee bit suspicious? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That I environment would. that he's come up in. Yeah. Also, if if you are raised, and if you've ever, you, you have children, if you know what two-year-olds are like, it's me, 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 I want, I want, I want, and don't tell me what to do. Well, when if you're born em to the emperorship, you know you're going to be emperor. Can you imagine your entire life, you have people waiting on you hand and foot and, and giving in to your whims. And if they don't, you can say off with your head. Yeah, I don't it's hard to imagine that, how that skews a person. It, it does. It, I think it can skew you. I, I don't know that Caligula was crazy. He certainly wasn't nice. He was certainly suspicious. And I'm sure he indulged a lot of whims. You know, he was willful and indiscreet an autocrat with sadistic taste, but you don't have to make him say he was crazy. I think that's Hollywood likes to do that. But, you know, he just spent his childhood surrounded by conspiracies. And then when he came to power, he did whatever he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. do. Do you think there was some sort of 
or I should say, what was the motive to kind of vilify him through all of history if it's not necessarily accurate? Because I think anybody that knows anything about Roman history knows that he has got one of the worst reputations, at least at a, a surface level. He, he does. And what usually gets you the bad reputation is you kill too many senators. <laughs> I, I don't think the Senate would mind if someone had a conspiracy against you and you killed two or three people who were in the conspiracy whether they were senators or not. But when you start widening the circle, then the question is how big does the circle have to get before it gets to me? Mm, right. And, you know, do we kill him before this circle gets larger? And so it's competing interests between the emperor's safety and what the Senate can tolerate, because all it takes then is a few people within the Senate say, you know, is enough is enough. We're not going to take this anymore. And they, you know, can make a, a move on him. The way they, they killed him, he was, there was a full-blown conspiracy. He's in the theater watching shows and stuff, and Claudius is sitting behind him. <laughs> and then he takes a break. He says, I'm going to go inside and, you know, take a shower, have lunch, and come back to the games. Well, when he goes inside, they get him in a corridor and they attack him. There's so much blood that there was a senator standing by with a clean toga, minding his own business, got splattered with blood. And when the guards showed up, they thought he must have been the dagger man because it was covered in blood. And they killed him. And he was nothing oh my gosh. but an innocent bystander. <laughs> um, then his, his wife and child try to escape through underground passage, the Cryptoporticus. The assassins hunt her down, kill her. The baby was less than a year old. They picked up his baby daughter by the feet and smacked her head against the wall. My gosh. So these were very dedicated people who obviously didn't like Caligula. And he'd been very nasty to people and nasty to some of his own Praetorian guards. I think he wasn't very smart that way. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, at the end, they just said, okay, that's it. We've, we've had enough of your uh, behavior. And, uh, and they kill him. And how interesting that Claudius, who followed him into that corridor, just happens to be hiding behind the curtain and pops out. And the guard takes him to their camp where he's safe and proclaim him the next emperor. Yes, I didn't really know anything about that until I read your book. But I was, I was kind of shocked at how all that played out, like these set pieces that were in place just, you know, to be, to debut, I guess you could say right after the killing, it was, it was a very orchestrated kind of thing. I think it was very, very well orchestrated. Uh, the, the, and then when you write the history after the fact, you say, oh, there was drooling Claudius behind the curtain and, and the guard just saw him and go, oh, he's a Julio Claudian. Let's make him emperor. And no, no. People who make the emperor are the people who killed the old emperor. Right, and, right. And I think that they have all of those elements in place. Now, you can plot, you can have what you think are the elements in place. People don't show up at the right time. Somebody takes a stab at him and misses. There's all kinds of things that can happen and it can go wrong. But we know about the plots that, that succeeded. We don't know a lot about the plots that don't because they did not succeed and they, they aren't written about in enough detail for us to know. Mm -hmm. But, but we always know what the motive is going to be. You're going to kill the emperor. So somebody else can be emperor. So was it accepted at the time or was it accepted for a while at least that Claudius became emperor almost by 
chance, I should say, or by luck, really? Or was it generally thought that he orchestrated or he was involved at least in the conspiracy I, that brought him to power? I don't I don't I think that was covered up. Hmm. Um because all of the his all of the histories, all of the histories are written by senators or senate people in the senatorial class who are um smiled upon by the emperor who's currently in power. So if Claudius had to be killed, then there has to be a reason why we had to do away with Claudius. Hmm. He was too influenced by his freedmen, he was too influenced by his wives, people who you know, who too debauched, too this, too that, too the other thing. They're not gonna tell you the truth. First of all, a lot of people don't know the truth. We don't even know if the historian knew the truth. He wasn't there. Mm-hmm. He wasn't part of the conspiracy. But one thing you know he's going to do is he's going to compliment the current emperor. And he's not going to say, oh, the current emperor, the one who killed the old one. No, 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 no. You couldn't possibly do that. So there's been a very uh, good book written about predecessor denigration. In other words, the the whole series of stories about emperors, and you have to put down the guy who got killed because he was bad and it's a justification it's it's like you know the official story mm-hmm. the new regime always comes out with the official story and uh, people will go oh is that what happened now some people will believe it and other people will say oh yeah the official story sure that's what they're telling us <laughs> but i know what really happened you know and that's when the conspiracy theories start that even today you know we don't we don't I mean, think about the Kennedy assassination, and we had that on film. Oh, I know it. I know. And nobody can believe, and nobody knows. You know, there's a Pruder film. We had eight, eight, wouldn't it nice to have 18 seconds of film on, you know, Caligula's assassination? No, <laughs> even even with that, we just don't know, and people will argue. Yep. No. Well, that's what people love to do most about history is argue about it. I think. Exactly. My gosh. So, Claudius. Uh, do I remember correctly, Claudius, his rule was not very long at all. Am I, am I remembering that right? He came to the throne in 42, and he left in 54. Okay, okay, longer than I thought. No, that's 12 years. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good run for an emperor. Right, right. Yeah, it is. I'm surprised he survived that long. So I, mm-hmm. I seem to recall that he was kind of underestimated, especially at first. Obviously, you mentioned he was not thought of well at all. So did he rise to the occasion, or did he beat expectations in any way during his rule? Because when he was young, all of his relatives were being slaughtered. I think he played the fool ah. that that he was supposed to have some kind of spastic disorder and he drooled. So he, he could play, you know, drooly Claudius because it would keep him alive. Nobody would believe he could become emperor, but he was exceedingly bright. He could speak Etruscan. He wrote a history of the Etruscans. I wish we had it. It hasn't survived. He was smart. He uh, did a lot of good things for the empire, but in the end, his wife did him in. So it doesn't negate all the good things that he did, you know, a nice building program, good foreign policy. He made. He did a, a very good job uh, as emperor. But people don't kill you because you did a good job or a bad job. They kill you because they want your job. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, Domitian did, a, again, is later than the period we're talking about, but you know, he did a lot of good things for the empire and yet, you know, still winds up dead. Amazing stuff. So did he was did he successfully neutralize any of the conspiracies against him as well? I mean, it just seems like they're never ending with these guys. Oh, yes. Claudius, as I said, it was a conspiracy by the governor of Dalmatia that included some high ranking generals and senators. 
In 43, there's an equestrian thrown off the Tarpeian Rock for plotting against the emperor. There's a Tarpeian Rock is is like a prominent outcropping of rock over the city. And if you throw somebody off of it, they'll they'll they're crushed below. And so that's that was a traditional way of getting rid of traitors. There was somebody who arrived with the morning callers armed with a sword. I presume he ended up dead. There was a, another one in uh, 46, Asinius Gallus, the grandson of Asinius Pollio, was banished. One of the consuls was banished. There's a bizarre episode in 48 where his wife, his previous wife, Messalina, is supposed to have married a guy named Gaius Silius in the palace. The emperor is on the road somewhere and you're having an open marriage to somebody else. What? It, the story makes no sense. But afterwards, eight senators, the prefect of the Wigilis, several equestrians, the Praetorian prefect, and an actor are all executed. Hmm. So whatever story was told about it, something was going on behind their back. Mm -hmm. Do you think at this point with the fourth emperor, do you think that internal security has been tightened up in any way, revolved in any way? Or are these cases of the, you know, the Delatoris doing what they're paid to do? I think in... Over the space of the five emperors, I think already under Augustus, the Praetorian prefect realized the power that he had because he was the head of the guard. He had Mm -hmm. 9,000 people behind him. Hmm, You can do something with that. If he was loyal, fine. If he was disloyal, then either you caught him being disloyal and killed him first, or he's part of the conspiracy and you wind up dead. And then you see, for example, later emperors will have two Praetorian prefects. That way you don't have to trust one person. You can have two. You can play them off against each other. By the time you get to the next dynasty, Vespasian, first thing he does, he makes his son the Praetorian prefect. Somebody he knows he can trust, which suggests that I think right from the beginning, the position had the possibility of being politicized. Okay. And and that's what happens at in the end, because I said, in order to kill the emperor, you need the Praetorian, one or both of the Praetorian prefects. You need somebody in the palace with the keys um, and a small note of people that are going to take care of the Senate once the murder is done to make the transition go smoothly. Hmm. That's something that's kind of unimaginable to like modern American government, you know, having to worry about, like, like you mentioned, two heads of the Secret Service so that neither one can ultimately get you, you know, the guys that are totally charged with your safety and ultimately they potentially pose the greatest threat. So that's an unimaginable way of trying to live and lead, you know, for us, I think. So what did happen to Claudius in the end? You said he lasted about 12 years? Yes. In 54, his his last wife poisoned him because she already had the heir in place. She wanted her son to reign after Claudius. And Claudius was, you know, older. She could have waited, <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> Nero had the ring. She didn't want to have to sleep with old Claudius anymore. And so bingo, Mm. she poisoned him. And finding poison mushrooms is not a problem. We we know of several professional poisoners in Rome that were friends of emperors and and enemies of emperors. And I've always wished we had enough information to write a biography of Rome's most famous poisoner. But there you go. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Hmm. So then it was Nero, then I take it, right? Yes. Was the fifth? Right. 
he comes to the throne and immediately there's a, the first five years were pretty good, but then there's a conspiracy under a man named Gaius Calpurnius Piso, the famous Pisonian conspiracy. And it's, it's a big one. And it was, it came close to being successful. There were senators involved. There were at least eight military people we know by name, including the Praetorian prefect, two tribunes of the Praetorians, but it fails. And boy, Nero's not happy. All those people are executed. In 66, there is a conspiracy under Annius Vinicianus, who's a, a senator, with some very high-ranking people, but they didn't think they could get to him to Nero in the palace. He was too well guarded. So they waited until he went to Beneventum in the south of Italy, and they put a hit out on him there. Unfortunately, that didn't succeed either. All of those people died. And then military people started coming under suspicion. The great general Corbulo, who was governor of Syria, gone. Um, the uh, Scribonii brothers, who were uh, both consuls and, um, uh, excuse me, um, generals in Germany, gone. Uh, several famous senators who were Stoic philosophers, Barius Serenus, gone. And so then, again, you're getting to the point where how many people are you going to kill? You have to keep the conspiracies down. But on the other hand, the more people you kill, the more potential enemies you have. And so the last revolt in 68, there was an uprising in Gaul under a man named Vindex, and all of the governors in the area in Germany, Spain, got together. And Nero, you know, he, he's an amazing person. He, he was very artistic, as we all know. He played the lyre. He sang. He liked to, you know, compete in sports. He was very vain. He redecorated Rome. He put, He had gardens for the people. You know, he loved putting on performances. As a soldier, not so good. Hmm. And so when the end came, rather than leading his armies out, leading the Praetorian Guard, he had 9,000 soldiers that he could have taken with him. He kind of does nothing. The Senate declares him an enemy of the state. The head of his Praetorian Guard turns against him, Nephidius. His palace guard desert him. His personal bodyguards flee. One morning he gets up in the morning and th there's nobody in the palace. There's just him. They'd even taken a point. He had poison in case he wanted to kill himself. They'd taken the box away. Oh, wow. So he has to escape from the palace. A freedman offers him refuge in a villa outside of town. And there's this long description of how they have to sneak him out and disguise him. And then even at the villa, he hears horses hooves coming. They're, they're coming to kill him. And so he gets a sharpened knife and he tries to slit his throat and he does that badly. So finally, Friedman Epaphroditus said, I'll do it for you. And he just, <laughs> they dispatch him. Wow. And he was only 30. He was only 30. My gosh. Yeah. All of these guys have such a terrible ending. It makes you wonder why people are constantly competing for that throne. But I guess they always think that they're different. Have you ever seen how, how much an American president ages in four years? I have, yeah. I've seen a few of the before and after pictures, which are not spaced that far apart, but you can tell the toll it takes on them. It does. It does. And most of them aren't, aren't assassinated, except for, you know, following Kennedy. We, we don't even in, in modern memory remember, you know, McKinley or Garfield. You know, we talk about Lincoln, but, but nobody remembers that. I mean, it's, they're pretty spaced out, few and far between. But with the Romans, I mean, the person when Vespasian came to the throne, he had five Julio-Claudians, as an example, before him, and four people during the year of the four emperors. 
that had been killed. So, but he still wanted the job because that's what ambition does to you. Yeah, yeah, certainly does. It just seems like how do I put it? It just seems like such incredible turmoil. I mean, I know that we've gone over several generations essentially in a very short period of time here, but it it seems like there was not a whole lot of continuity there and not a whole lot of peace in the Roman Empire in the early years. No. I think one of the reasons the historians tell these stories is because they want to think that somebody is in charge, that there were these uh, conspiracies, but the emperor you know, took care of it and, and killed those and that Rome could be stable. They, want, they always want Rome to be stable, not necessarily at peace. If they're at war, at least win. You know, they, they want bread and circuses. They're not much, the, the, the common man is not involved in what happens in the palace, which is why there's very little threat from, from the average person. They don't get to see the emperor. If you're at the far end of the empire, you don't even know who the emperor is. I always felt bad for the poor stonecutter who's somewhere, you know, in, in the far end of Syria, carving out the name of an emperor. And then somebody goes, Hey, Marius, the emperor just changed. And he's going to, you know, get rid of, <laughs> get his chisel and, you know, hack out the name of the, put mm-hmm. the name of the new emperor. And because they don't see emperors, you know, this is, this is all an internal palace kind of affair because there's nobody there when it happens. Uh, we don't have any eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really astonishing stuff to think about. Do you think, broadly speaking, that despite all of the things that were accomplished under, Roman civilization, did they just have very poor internal security measures for the emperors, or did they catch the vast majority of conspiracies one way or the other, and just a few got through eventually? Well, I think an interregnum is is a very dangerous time, that when an emperor dies, I guess the good planning came in where, oh, well, we have this other emperor right here, and uh, so there's some sort of continuity. Who knows? They could have said, well, he died of natural causes. You know, maybe Tiberius did, maybe Tiberius didn't, maybe Augustus mm-hmm. did, maybe Augustus didn't. We we don't know, and they didn't know. All all they know is, oh, new emperor, everything's going on, business as usual. You know, shops will be open tomorrow. The wine store is still selling <laughs> drinks, so you know we're okay. There's no upheaval. Sure, it makes it makes things a, a little unsteady, but that was the nature of. The, rule in the Roman Empire. I mean, but it lasted 500 years. So obviously, you know, if you don't mind frequent turnover, they did a good job. You know, the emperor was always there. Some emperor was always there. They never did solve the problem of the transition. That was always the weak point. Mm -hmm. But yet for 500 years, there was not only was there a Roman Empire, but we're still talking about it. It's still the model you know, are, is America the new Rome? You know, why is everybody talking about the Roman Empire? We're still making movies about it. You know, we still model, America modeled itself after the Roman Republic. And so, you know, if you want to look at the positive side of it, it did many wonderful and great things. I just happen to be focusing on that other stuff. And, and you know, it's it's a little kind of cynical when you're looking at people from the point of view of intelligence failures. It always seems like, oh my God, you only only talk about the bad side. Well, that's what I'm studying. It's not the whole picture of Rome, but I think if there's a a lesson to be learned, it should be taken from Godfather 2, when Michael Corleone says, 
if there's one thing we've learned from history is that you can kill anyone. If you're willing <laughs> to die in the attempt, you can kill anyone. And that includes the Roman emperor. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, in an odd kind of way, these guys are still very much immortal because mm -hmm. here we are still talking about them two millennia later. Absolutely. So I'm sure that that would have done uh, a lot for their ego mm -hmm. as well to know that their ambitions played out in a very real way. And they became, you know, they were just kind of painted into the tapestry of mm -hmm. human civilization in that way. There we go. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Rosemary. This is such a fascinating topic for me, and I'm glad that I was able to have you back. And I hope that we can do it again sometime soon. Are you working on another book or another project right now as well? I have just finished uh, another book on the um, next dynasty, the Flavian dynasty, which has three emperors. The dynasty starts with an assassination and the dynasty ends with an what? assassination. Surprise! <laughs> and that kept me busy. And, and the other two projects, I'm working on two reference works, bibliographies that I'm bringing up to date because in 2001, I wrote a, a Espionage in the Ancient World, The Sources, and in 25 years, they've come up with a lot of new things. And so I'm, I'm bringing those together so that I can publish them and put them out there for other scholars. Fantastic. Fantastic. It sounds like you're keeping busy and you know, the, everybody loves this topic and can't get enough of it, it seems like. Well, I'm not going to run out of assassinations, that's for sure. <laughs> Glad to hear it for our very selfish sake anyway. Well, thank you. So do you have a, any public facing social media or a website or anything like that for people that want to connect with you and learn more after they listen to this episode? If people want to connect with me, all they have to do is uh, send an email to my VMI address, which I still keep, sheldonrm at vmi.edu. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And the book, for those of you who want to go out and pick it up, is called Kill Caesar by Rosemary Sheldon. It was very, very interesting. I read it before uh, this interview, just like I do all of my interviews, and I really enjoyed it, and I learned quite a bit. And there is a, a tremendous amount of detail there that we don't have the time to cover in a single interview, of course. But if you are as big of a fan of Roman history as I probably know that you are, then I think you're really going to enjoy this as well. So thank you so much, Rosemary. I really appreciate your time. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.